Good morning, all. Yes, it's on. Thank you. So we're going to, if I can get uh, caught up here, we're going to work on uh, finishing the doctrine of election this morning. Okay, so just uh, let's pray and then we'll do a little bit of review and then we'll finish up the doctrine of election. And if we have time, I want to do kind of a special topic that kind of came to my brain this morning that I'd like to talk to you about and maybe even have a little discussion about. So let's pray. Our Father, it's uh, a wonderful day to worship you. This is Sunday. It is the day that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and we celebrate that at the beginning of every week. We thank you, Lord, for this Lord's Day. We pray it would be our last one on this earth. We pray, Lord, that the next time we meet together would be before your throne. The Lord Jesus Christ, having sent his mighty archangel to sound the trumpet of God, that we would be before you, Lord, leaving this sinful world behind. But in the meantime, help us this Lord's Day to be faithful, to engage our minds, engage our hearts, and to enjoy the warmth and the fire of the Word of God, which thrills our souls and bolsters our minds against all the evil that is in this world. And so I pray that this day would be a little bit more uh, strengthening to us, a little bit more of a help to us. But most of all, we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased with our listening ears this day as we honor you by learning of you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So we started a couple of times ago um, looking at the doctrine of election. We're in module four, session three, officially, and we've already been in that for two sessions. Um, And last time, because one person asked a question, I preached a sermon through Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Don't ask me about Leviticus because I don't have time to do that next time. But kind of what the relationship between human responsibility and divine election, how uh, how those relate. And so what we'll do today is we're going to just finish up... um, some thoughts on the doctrine of election, um, including what some have called double predestination. We want to deal with that uh, issue, and I hope this will be helpful to you. And then uh, once we finish that, if we have time, and I think we should, um, I'm going to pose a question to you, try to answer it, and then we can discuss anything you want about the doctrine of election and uh, maybe take some questions. So to finish up today, or finish up this whole section... I want to ask this question, what does foreknowledge refer to in Romans 8.29? Romans 8.29, strangely enough, is not written in my notes, so I will look it up. Is it on the slide? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, So Romans 8.29, highly debated verse. Actually, it's only debated by those who want to change their hermeneutics to fit their beliefs. It's pretty straightforward. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what does foreknowledge refer to in Romans 8.29? What is this speaking of? What is those whom he foreknew? Here's the classic Arminian view, which is also the default view of American evangelicalism, pretty much across the board, that foreknowledge means foresight. 
In other words, God looks down the tunnel of time. This is the classic corridor of time argument. God looks down the corridor of time and sees who will believe. Now, once he sees those who will believe, then he says, those are the elect. And that's how he chooses. And so in this sense, election is conditional. It's conditioned on the fact that a person must be seen to believe in order to be elected. Now, let me just stop for a minute, and, and this is unplanned, but I, this occurs to me how illogical this is and how denigrating to the character of God it is. Because when it says that God looks down the corridor of time, what does that do to God? It positions him in one place in time, doesn't it? That he's somehow looking down the corridor. I would say it's way more accurate to say God is already there. God is outside of time. He created time. We, we wouldn't say God is in a point in time. You wouldn't say that God holds anything as future. This is why Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How was Abraham saved 2,000 years before the birth of Christ? He was saved by the blood of Christ because time does not impact the, the uh, means of redemption, which is Christ. So to say that God looked down the corridor of time is very limiting to God. It says that he wasn't there yet. He just looked ahead to see what's going to happen and that God is just desperately trying to catch up. That's what that really says. So is, is election conditional? Is it conditioned on the fact that a person must be seen to believe in order to be elected? Well, here in Romans eight twenty nine, it says that God foreknew people not a belief. He didn't just know what people would do. He knew people. And there's a, there's a big difference between looking down the corridors of time, so to speak, and knowing what somebody's going to do. But this is the idea of knowing somebody. And if I could, if I could stretch this analogy just a little bit, in the Bible, there is a, a euphemism used of a married couple that one knows the other. There is a relationship that is brought together. And so the idea of foreknowledge is not just knowledge of something somebody is going to do. It is intimate knowledge that a person is going to enter into in a relationship. That, that he's already chosen that. The Bible never speaks of our faith as being the reason that God chooses. I would defy anybody to find one place in the Bible that says that God chose you because you had faith. There's no place in Scripture that I'm aware of. Why does God choose? God chooses people based on His sovereign will and because of His grace, not because of the faith of His people. This, this pushes back hard against, if you say God chooses because of your faith, it means you weren't totally depraved. If you're not totally depraved, you're bringing something to the table in salvation. If you're bringing something to the table in salvation, then you are taking glory from God. There's no other way to, to put that. So the, the domino effect of believing that God looked down the corridor of time and chose those who would choose him, the domino effect is really to denigrate the character of God at quite a high level. We weren't capable of having faith. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that faith is a gift, right? If, if we were capable of having faith, then um, God does not receive all the glory. And as we've said before, if God looked down the corridor of time to see who would believe 
And those who believe are believing because they figured it out, because they had faith, because they were smart enough, wise enough to decide to come to faith in Christ. What does that leave open? It leaves open the possibility of time that God looks down the corridor of time and there's nobody there. And in fact, we would say that that would in fact be the case. Because Romans 3 says there's no one who does good. There's no one who seeks after God. So therefore, you can't have it both ways. You really can't. So what does foreknowledge refer to in Romans eight twenty nine? That God foreknew people that he was going to choose. That he's already chosen them. How does he know who was going to choose him? Because he already chose them. And we've said this before from Ephesians 1 that that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. That's just a human way to try to help us understand uh, that that God has always chosen us. So the conditional election view just doesn't hold water. So what I want to do now is um, it, it grieves me that the doctrine of election gets turned into an intellectual argument. And that it's just a, well, I'm right and you're wrong kind of a thing. That's not the purpose of the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is meant to encourage our hearts. So let me give you some encouragements here. Um, First of all, election is the decision of God to save a certain specific group and conform them to the image of Christ. Why is that encouraging? Because not one person that God has elected deserved it. What did God tell Adam? If you disobey me, you will die. Did he actually die at that moment? He didn't. He had almost a thousand years of grace and he was given, um, and a, the, given the, the method by which to be saved. And that is sacrifice. That is blood. And so God was gracious. So election is the decision of God to save a certain specific group. We said this before. Election is placed before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. There is absolutely no way around this grammatically. You cannot... You can't massage the grammar. You can't massage the Greek at all. It is before the foundation of the world. And again, that is an earthly way of saying that God has always chosen because we would say if God is all-knowing, he's never learned anything, right? You can't say that God's ever learned anything. He's never come to any new conclusions. So to say that he looked down the corridor of time and chose those who would choose him says that he's learned something. If God can learn, then I can't serve him because that means he's not all-knowing. If he's not all-knowing, then there's at least somewhat of a chance that he doesn't know how to get me to heaven. So I can't serve a God who's not all-knowing. Another encouragement, election is unconditional in that it's based on God's sovereign divine will and not on what people will do. There's no place in Scripture that says election is based on people's actions. There's none. It is simply God's purpose. And if we could find one reason, Ephesians 1 gives us the one reason, in love. In love, He predestined us. Another encouragement, Ephesians 1, 3 through 7, election is in Christ. What is it, why is this so encouraging? Because the believer in Christ was chosen to be in Christ. That phrase is used dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament. You're in Christ. You're a part of Christ. You're attached to Christ. Where Christ goes, you will always go. Uh, This wonderful encouragement from 1 Thessalonians 4, um, speaking of the rapture of the church and the resurrection, that when we are with Christ, we will always be with him. 
There will be a day, we've never seen Jesus face to face, but there will be a day when you see him, you realize you'll never ever be separated from him again. You'll be, you'll be like this, like the, the Pied Piper. You'll always be where he is. So the encouragement is that we're in Christ. We also see that election is presented as a comfort. God always works for the good of those who are chosen. This is what the, the context of Romans eight twenty nine is 28 and 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Notice who does the calling. God does. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What does that mean? It means if God knows you, if he has elected you, you are 100% guaranteed to someday be perfected exactly into the image of Christ. Never, never to sin, never to be bogged down by your own worries. You will have that perfect nature. And then 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Meaning that God will finish the work of salvation. That you, you will lose your earthly body. You will gain your soul. You will gain heaven. That God never starts the process of salvation without finishing it. Not one time. Jesus said this in John 10, 26 and 27, that the, the sheep know my voice. And not one of them will be snatched out of my hand. There's no such thing as an elect person who will not be saved. We also see that election is a reason to praise God. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6 and also verse 12 tells us that election is to give glory to God. All glory goes to God because you did absolutely nothing for your salvation. I can't emphasize this enough it is impossible to rightly worship God if you take even one iota of credit for your salvation because you're not giving him all glory. How many times does the New Testament, particularly the book of Revelation, say that all glory, all honor, all praise is due to God? Not most, not 99.99%, but all. What is the math? What, what, what number goes on your side? Zero. Right? How about double, triple, zero? We also see that election is an encouragement for evangelism. 2 Timothy 2.10, the Apostle Paul said, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Uh, We've said this before. It is an absolute myth that those who believe in the doctrine of election are not motivated to evangelize we would call that hyper calvinism and we don't believe in that we are commanded to share the gospel and the encouragement is is that um, your efforts will be successful because the elect always get saved we're just not privy to who that is and so uh, it is an encouragement for evangelism i always go back to the to one of my heroes of the faith george whitfield in the 18th century greatest evangelist since the apostle paul absolutely staunch on the doctrine of election and preached to tens of millions of people in an age before any uh, electronic equipment or, or electronic means of communication. Staunchly Calvinist. And then, as an encouragement also, election is a reason for not being too hard on ourselves when people refuse to believe. It's not that we're callous to that. I, I don't know a single believer who is a Calvinist who believes in the doctrine of election who is nonchalant 
about the lost? I don't think I, I don't think I've ever heard any of you say, well, oh, well, if he's lost, then he's lost too bad. I don't think any of you have ever said that. We hurt, we grieve, we desire, we, we yearn for the lost to be saved. But when somebody doesn't believe, do you want to blame yourself? I don't think that's fair. How can you force somebody to believe? You can't do that. God alone can change a heart. And so what is your job? Your job is to pray and to give the gospel. It is God's job to change the heart. So there's so many encouragements from the doctrine of election and those aren't presented in order of importance, but just by way of, I guess, a a personal note from me. The biggest impact on the doctrine of election for me has come in two ways and they both uh, both happen, I guess you might say, in this room uh, for me. Uh, The first one is that when we come to worship God, and I've told you this before, I grew up in a staunchly Arminian family and never experienced this, but when we come to worship God, we leave self at the door completely. There's no sense in which I take one little tiny bit of credit for God's work in my life, for God's redemption, for the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And what that does is that drives you to your knees. Because you're in awe, you're in shock that God would choose you. Because the, uh, the old saying is, is that if, uh, if you knew about me, what God knows about me, you wouldn't come to church here. But if I knew about you, what God knows about you, I wouldn't let you in in the first place. We are all saved by grace. And what does that do? That, for me personally, that has driven me to a level of worship that, that is just, it gives God all glory. Or I'm just stunned that he would, that he would do this for me. Because there's no reason to. There's no, there's no merit in myself. And the other thing that has encouraged me personally is I, I'm so motivated to share the gospel because I know that every time the gospel is preached, it is the power of God for salvation. And as the Apostle Paul said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation. That's a very interesting note in 2 Timothy 2.10, because Paul is speaking of unbelievers who are elect. And that's his drive, that's his motivation. So I hope those are encouraging ideas to you from the doctrine of election. Now, here's where I think we get a big hang-up. And that is on the idea of double predestination. Predestination, double predestination. Um, and we, we talked about this before, so I'm going to back up just a bit here before we get to those, those notes. But let me just define the idea of double predestination again. Um, <clears throat> if I can find my notes. Well, I know what it is. I don't need my notes. Um, double predestination says that God chooses some people who didn't want to go to heaven to go to heaven and he chooses other people who may have wanted to go to heaven to go to hell. Does that make sense? That, that God chooses those uh, who don't want anything to do with him and he, he uh, foists belief upon them and we're dragged kicking and screaming all the way to heaven. And he chooses others that then say, but I wanted to be chosen. But they go to hell. And we've said this before, the class of person who wanted Christ but could not be saved, that class of person does not exist. The New Testament never shows that. 
What did Jesus say? Come to me. What's the next word? All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. From a human standpoint, the call of the gospel goes to everyone. It goes to all. And so double predestination basically takes human will and makes it nothing whatsoever. Human will is involved. It's just that God is the one who initiates human will. So double predestination says that those going to heaven didn't particularly want to go, and those going to hell wish they could have gone to heaven. We have examples, uh, at least one from Scripture, of somebody in the waiting room, at least, for hell. That is the rich man uh, in Luke 16, who is in Hades, kind of the, the place of flames that will eventually be thrown into the lake of fire. And he, in this story of Jesus, makes requests of Abraham. If you're in hell, what's the first request logically we would say? Can I get out of here? And he doesn't ask for that. Why? And I've preached that passage from Luke 16. He doesn't ask for it because he still hates the God of heaven. Even though he's in hell, he still hates the God of heaven. Let me ask you this. If you are God, what do you do with people who refuse to love you and hate you and will hate you even when they're in the flames of fire? What would you do with them? You'd leave them there. So double predestination is a, it's, it's a mischaracterization of God that he's chosen some people to suffer even though they're crying out for mercy. What did Jesus say he would do to those who cry for mercy? He will give them mercy. Always, every time. So, let me give you some thoughts then on predestination and double predestination. I think this will help you understand and probably the key word here is means. And we'll get to this in a minute. Means. Predestination is a biblical concept. If you deny it altogether, then you're denying the Bible. It, it, is, it is all over Scripture. We've even read some of them today. You can't say, I don't believe in predestination, but I believe in the Bible. That's an inconsistent statement. Romans eight twenty nine. again, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, prognosco, to, to look before. Those who he also, uh, Romans eight thirty. Those those whom he predestined, I'm sorry, not prognosco, it's proorizo. It means to determine beforehand. I got my words mixed up. Foreknowledge is the prognosco, the prognosis. Uh, Ephesians 1, 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 11, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his will. So to deny predestination is to deny the Bible. You can't have it both ways. Second thought on predestination and double predestination Predestination clearly involves election to life for some. That's very clear from Scripture. Ephesians 13, I'm sorry, Acts 13, 48. Gentiles have heard the message of the gospel. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen to this. And as many as, as had been appointed to eternal life believed. It is not that as many as believed were then appointed to eternal life. The, order, the word order is very important. As many as been appointed to eternal life believed. When did the appointment happen? Sometime before they believed. Here's a third thought. Since God is sovereign over all, it's incorrect to think that his sovereignty would also not extend to the non-elect. If you believe the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God, which we do, 
then sovereignty necessarily is total, right? You wouldn't say, well, I'm the president of 48 states, but two states can, you know, I have nothing to do with them. Sovereignty is total. And so that means that his sovereignty extends to the non-elect. And so unbelievers and their fate is somehow linked to God's sovereign plan and decree. We can't separate those. You can't say that God had nothing to do with the fate of the the non-elect of the unbeliever. So, understanding those those three facts, there must be some sense in which the destiny of the non-elect is predestined. Some might call that double predestination. But the key is the word means. How does that predestination happen? There is a certainty of predestination for both the elect and the non-elect. But the means of giving certainty to both groups doesn't have to be the same. Let me see if I can explain this. God ordains reprobation, the non-elect, and election. He ordains reprobation and election with equal sovereignty. We cannot say that God is less sovereign over one than the other. That would be inconsistent with the character of God. But his means of making reprobation and election certain is very different. The means is different. A distorted view of double predestination would be that the means is identical. What do I mean by this? God works faith in the heart of the elect and God works sin in the heart of the non-elect. That would be identical. Because God cannot sin nor does he cause anybody to sin. Right? Do we all agree on that? Does God cause anybody to sin? No. So we can't say that. We would say then, if the means is identical, that God then is coercing men to sin so that he doesn't have to save them. We we can't come anywhere near that. That is so horrifying to the character of God. It's a massive assault on his integrity. So what is the means? It's different for both. The means of reprobation is conditional, meaning that God judges the non-elect based on their sin, based on their rebellion against God, based on their rejection of all that is true, based on the rejection of Christ. Do they deserve those things? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no sense in which we couldn't, for example, quote James 2.10, that, uh, that if you have violated one part of the law, you violated all of it. So how much of the law have we violated according to the Lord? All of it. So the reprobate is condemned based on his actions. That's the means. It is not uh, at the great white throne judgment when the Lord Jesus Christ opens the books, as Revelation 20 says. It's not that the book is opened and it says, oh, I chose you for hell. That's why you're going. The books are opened and every sin is listed, is read, and is condemned and is judged. So that's the means for the reprobate. It is his own sin. He is fully guilty. What is the means, though, for the elect? The means is unconditional. Why do people go to hell? Because they deserve it. Why do people go to heaven? Because they don't deserve it. Very simple. Election, in a nutshell, is based on the unmerited favor of God, despite what we deserve. How about this? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, 
That's conditional based on what sinners have done and what they deserve. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's unconditional based on the unmerited favor and grace of God. So you have reprobation and election all in one verse. Wages of sin is the willful sinful rebellion against God. And free gift is the election that is eternal life. I said I was going to do a little side issue uh, aside from the extra entertainment we got this morning. And that is this. Recently, uh, this issue is big and um, it's something I've thought a lot about. You remember a few weeks ago I preached on uh, the five points of Calvinism. Um, TULIP. So I won't ask anybody individually, but can anybody remember what does T stand for in TULIP? Total depravity. What does the U stand for? Unconditional election. What does the L stand for? Limited atonement or particular, but tupup doesn't work as well, so we stay with uh, limited atonement, particular redemption. Uh, what does the I stand for? Irresistible grace. And what does the P stand for? Perseverance of the saints. The P is always the hardest one for some reason because you're already saved at that point, and so you don't care. Um, it's the perseverance of the saints. So I've heard this phrase so many times, and I decided to just think it through and wonder why does this not make sense? And here's the phrase. I'm a four-point Calvinist. Does anybody know the point they always uh, get hung up on? You're close. But you said all of them except the the one that's right. Uh, Limited atonement. Because just like the gentleman who was escorted off of our property recently, um, they would say, that God cannot possibly have sent Jesus to only die for some. He can't possibly have done that. Well, here's my, here's my little thing. I don't think it's possible to actually be consistent logically and say you're a four-point Calvinist. Let me explain why. What's the opposite of limited atonement? Unlimited atonement. Which means that Christ came to die potentially for the sins of everyone, right? So if you say, I'm a four-point Calvinist, that means you believe in the you in unconditional election. But how can you say that Christ came to die for some who are not elect? How does that make any sense? That is absolutely illogical. By saying, I believe in unlimited atonement, what you're saying is, is that Christ came to die for people that I don't believe will ever go to heaven. Because I also believe in election. Uh, How about this one? Can you believe in unlimited atonement and yet still believe in irresistible grace? You can't, logically. Because if you believe that Christ died for everyone, but only some of them will come to faith in Christ, then grace is not, by definition, irresistible. It is, by definition, resistible. So by my count, at best, you can say, I'm a two-point Calvinist, maybe. The problem is, is if you believe in total depravity, then you don't have a means by which somebody can come to faith. And so if you don't have a means by which somebody to come to come to faith, now you're just not tulip. You're just. (laughs) And doesn't exist. Because nobody who doesn't believe T-U-L-I believes P. They're always in the camp of, oh, yeah, you can lose your salvation. So I just wanted to bring that up. You cannot logically say, I'm a four-point Calvinist, or three, two, or one. 
it's either five or nothing, right? And that's fine as people come along and as they grow, they haven't thought about those connections. But ultimately, they're so intimately connected. And I would remind everybody that Tulip came about as an answer to uh, the Armenians in Holland in the, in the 16th century, uh, early 17th century. And uh, the opposite of Tulip was condemned by a church council in Holland as heresy. All five points, including unlimited atonement. Why would they say unlimited atonement is heresy? Because they would say, because that says that Christ came to die for people who go to hell anyway, which is double jeopardy. The Christ died for people who are going to be sent to hell. It's like their sins got paid for at the cross, but not really. So it denigrates the character of, of God, um, the character of Christ. So I just, I was thinking about that and I thought, wait a minute, you can't be a four-point Calvinist. Not and maintain logic. Does that sort of make sense? I know we're getting into real nerdy territory here now, and, and, and I understand that, but we want to think through these things. So now that we've had our excitement for the morning, uh, does anybody have any questions about the doctrine of election? Based in scripture, perhaps, and not emotion. Yes, all the way in the back. Um, as graciously as you can, but the fact is, is you're dealing with somebody who, in a lot of cases, doesn't want truth. What, what this gentleman's problem was is he started with a presupposition. He started with an assumption and tried to foist it onto the Bible. And so that's really hard to undo. If, if you're trying to have a, a one-time conversation, and to me, you know, like I, I wouldn't interrupt I wouldn't interrupt an atheist who was talking, to be honest with you, just because it's rude. Um, that's a separate issue. But if you're, if you're talking to somebody in one conversation, sound bites probably aren't going to prove anything to them. Um, giving them a list of scriptures and saying, would you be willing to read these? And just take it at face value that when Ephesians 1 says um, that God chose us from the foundation of the world, what do you think that means? So if you have a chance to give them scriptures, that's one thing. But if you can, if you have uh, the opportunity to invite somebody to a longer conversation, to multiple conversations, um, then what's good to do is to say, let's just study scripture together. And let's begin looking at verses and read it like you would a newspaper. Uh, How do you read it? Or we don't have newspapers anymore. Um, But read it like you would a news article. Um, Except if it comes from CNN, we generally believe what we what we read. Right. Right. so believe the Bible. Just th- take it at face value and believe what it says. So getting them to just look at Scripture and, and understand, okay, well, how do you take Romans 8, 29? That those whom he foreknew, well, foreknew, uh, proorizo, never means passive knowledge. It always means to actively make something happen. So how do you get around that? So you're just presenting them with facts. Um, but ultimately, there's two flavors of, of those who don't hold to the doctrine of election. There are the unbelievers who have judged God. And then there are the believers who are just not well taught and they're entrenched in presuppositions. So you just give them the word. You give them the word. I, I've, never known, uh, I've never known a Calvinist who goes back to be an Arminian 
without going all the way to rejecting faith in Christ altogether. So they turn out to be the Hebrew 6 person that we talked about last time. So does that help a little bit? It's not easy. If I had the exact answer to that question, I'd be a billionaire right now. How to change all your, Calvin, all your uh, Armenians into Calvinists? Yeah, it's, it's tough. What are the questions? Yes, Chris. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, my dad was a lifetime Arminian until he became a closet Calvinist right at the end of his life because he worked for an Arminian ministry, went to an Arminian church. And so uh, he listened, strangely enough, to my sermons on the book of Genesis years and years ago. And he just said, God chose Noah. God chose Abraham. God chose Isaac. God chose Jacob. God chose Israel. God chose me. And he couldn't escape that conclusion, but he couldn't tell anybody that except me. Um, So absolutely they're saved because uh, your salvation is not dependent on any work, including understanding the doctrine of election. Or I I don't know if an unbeliever can understand that, to be honest with you. I mean, most believers don't understand it. I don't know if an unbeliever can understand it. Let me put it to you this way. Um, You think about this. What What does Romans 8 call us? Romans 8 calls us adopted children of God, that we're adopted. Um, and, and she doesn't mind if I do this, but I, you know, I've used our daughter Julia as an illustration. Uh, when we went to get her in Korea, she was six months and two weeks old. And she was basically a little bit bigger than the size of a newborn. She was a little bit, a little bit small. D- did she say, hang on just a minute, this is not your choice to make. This is my choice. I have a free will here. You know, God, 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 you know, I don't want to go with you or I do want to go with you. She couldn't make that choice any more than we could choose to be saved. As the years progressed, she began to understand that it was an act of grace. We would say from God that, that put us together. It was an act of grace. There was nothing she did whatsoever. It was all us, all the Lord, so to speak. So, she didn't need to understand that, well, I'm part of this agency that is now going to match me up with my parents and that she didn't understand that. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can be saved not understanding that. I would say that was 100% of us. I, I can't think of an unbeliever or, or a new believer that says, yeah, I understood the doctrine of election before I was saved. I, I can't fathom that. So, yeah, great question. What else? Yeah, David. It is. Uh, uh, what is God's purpose? I, I think, and this is, this is pure speculation because I don't know the heart of God, but what I've seen happen is that division in the church separates the men from the boys spiritually, those who want to study the Bible and those who want to stick to their presuppositions. And the Lord is going to, going to um, use for the sake of the gospel those who want to study the Bible. Now, I always fall back on the default position is Philippians 1, 
Paul is talking about people who are, are spreading the gospel of Christ or some close version of it, mostly based on the fact that they don't like Paul. And what did he say about them? He said, I praise God that the gospel is being preached, even if it's out of the wrong motives. So you know what? I, I pray that tens of millions of people get saved in horrible Armenian churches. And we, we thank the Lord for that. They'll become Calvinists when they go to heaven anyway. So, um, But God's purpose... Uh, you know, why, why do we have so many denominations and why do they always fail? Every denomination in human history has failed, ultimately. So we kind of, we've punted those, right? You know, here, we, we're just not part of anything. So what is God's purpose? Um, he, he destroys lofty arguments. He forces us to think. Um, just out of curiosity, how many of you have spent time in an Armenian church in your lifetime? Yes. Why are you here? Because you've been seeking truth, right? And look what it's done. It's brought us together. So I'm thankful for that. Um, I, would say, I would say rather than thinking in terms of whether God's purpose is, it's clearly Satan's purpose to divide the church. And he divides the church by depriving it of oxygen. And the oxygen is the word of God. I, I guarantee you that somebody who is a brand new believer and is not taught anything and they read the Bible cover to cover, then they do it again, 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 will never be Arminian. They, they would never say that. Um, same reason I would say that they would always conclude that Israel will be restored someday because the Bible is saturated in that. So what's God's purpose? I think is to sharpen those who want to be sharpened and to separate the men from the boys spiritually, the ladies from the girls spiritually, and then Satan's purpose, though, is to divide us. Because what is it that unites us? According to Ephesians 4, we're united under the banner of doctrine, under truth. And so ultimately, you can't unite with somebody who will not believe that which is true. Um, now, whole other issue, well, what, what it's called the issue of the degrees of separation. You know, what churches will we align ourselves with completely? Not very many. What churches will we align ourselves with to do things like the Steadfast Bible Conference probably more because we can agree on some essentials uh what churches will we stay completely away from and in fact condemn probably a lot of them especially if they're not proclaiming the gospel uh, um, I, i've been involved with a situation in northern california where a a um, eldership i think i told you about this last time an eldership chose to baptize a transgender child uh, using his girl name and affirming that so what do you do with that? You condemn it. You condemn it. And that no longer is a church. And that, that church needs to be blown apart. It just needs to be scattered. Um, because the leadership has done what? They punted the word of God completely. So, so what's the purpose? I, I don't know exactly, but I do know this. I'm so thankful that the Lord has given us the word of God. And if we'll simply examine it, these truths come to light. And you can't come to any other conclusion. Yeah, good question. Thank you, David, for throwing that massive curveball. <laughs> what other questions? I thought we were just going to talk doctrine. So, what other questions? Well, let me return to one topic that actually begins Bible Training Institute in Module 1, and that is to be reminded that the gentleman that was taken out here, I, I, we hurt for him. You, you could hear the anguish in his voice because he doesn't understand that the truth is right here. And that if he would study the word, 
from an, from, not from an emotional presupposition, but just let the word of God speak for itself. There's such joy and such delight and such worship in that. In the few minutes that, that I was talking here, we already, just in this time, and this is just finishing up the doctrine of election, we already gave ample proof of the doctrine of election. But I'm just thankful that, that our ears have been unstopped. And I think it's really, really important that we just be as gracious as possible. It's, I've never seen anybody get argued into the kingdom. Never seen anybody get argued into believing better. I don't mean in the sense of arguing your point. I just mean in the sense of being argumentative. You know, I, it just broke my heart. I kind of wanted Dave to kind of leave him here for a minute, but he was disrupting everything, so we couldn't. Um, so as you're surrounded by people who don't believe the way you do, just be gracious. Try to find opportunities to humbly show them the word of God. Where is that the hardest to do? It's hardest to do in your family, isn't it? You know, it's hard to go to your own dad and say, Dad, can I show you what the Bible says about this? Because that's hard. So we be gracious and demonstrate to the world that those who believe the truth act it out and that we're gracious and kind. Does that make sense? Because you can't change everybody's mind, um, although we, we want to. So invite them to church and just say, look, come six times. And if you think our pastor's a nut job, then don't come back. That's fine. There's no problem. Push it off on somebody else. I had so many talks with my dad about Calvinism and Arminianism, and we decided we couldn't talk about it anymore. But because he was my dad and he tried to be proud of me, he would listen to my sermons. Um, and that was the only reason. And I still remember that phone call. It was one of the last phone calls that I ever had with him. He said, you know, God chose Adam, God chose Noah, God chose Abraham, had that whole conversation. God chose me. So, I, however the Lord works, but be gracious and be kind. Well, uh, let's do one more question, if anybody has a question. Have we beaten this horse to death? All right, let's thank the Lord. Our God, we are left with nothing. We came with nothing. We come to you, though, with nothing but gratitude. We cannot judge you. We cannot claim to know the mind of God. We cannot claim to know your purposes except as you reveal them in Scripture. And all we know is that in love you predestined us. We know that you have called us you have justified us, and you will glorify us. And so we're left with our hands empty, outstretched to heaven in gratitude, Lord. We thank you for those who are here. And once again, Lord, we pray for the gentleman that is just so, so wrapped around presuppositions and false arguments, Lord. Open his eyes to the truth, and I, I pray that there's some way we can minister to him. We pray in Christ's name, amen.